0: The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. We cannot take your calls at this time, but you can still join this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Julie Berry was inspired to write her new historical novel, The Passion of Dulce, while listening to a college lecture she found online about medieval France. Fascinated, Barry began a two-year dive into research on the era, learning about the lives of several medieval female mystics like Claire of Assisi and Catherine of Siena, women who rejected marriage, almost unheard of at the time, and bucked the authority of the church with their own religious visions. The Passion of Dulce is set during the 13th century in southern France, the area now known as Provence, in the aftermath of the Albigensian Crusade. Today we're going to talk about the surprising number of parallels between the issues facing people in the 13th century and issues we're facing today. We're going to also talk about uh, some of Barry's other work, including All the Truth That's in Me and The Scandalous Sisterhood of Prickwillow Place. One reviewer, speaking of that last mentioned book, said if David Sedaris and Agatha Christie had a child, it would be Julie Barry. Julie Berry grew up in western New York. She holds a bachelor's degree from Rensselaer in communication and an MFA from uh, Vermont College in writing for children and young adults, and she now lives in Southern California with her husband and four sons. So I understand, um, I'm reading here, you began a two-year dive into research of the era before Passion of Dulce, Um, and this was in turn, I guess, um, initiated by an online Lecture about medieval France? Do you go tooling around the Internet, uh, seeking out such things?
0: Actually, I was listening to a lecture published by the Great Courses Company. So they oh, okay. they sell various college lecture series on a lot of different topics. And I had purchased one called The Terror of History, and it was all about different movements, particularly through the Middle Ages, such as you know witchcraft, millenarian movements, various sort of religious Uh, ideas that became popular, as well as a, a sort of craze over heresy and the violence that followed it. And so I was listening to a lecture about the Albigensian Crusade in what is now southern France and about the inquisitions that followed that war. And I was astonished that I had never heard anything about this before in my life, and I wondered how something so dark and so significant to history could have flown under my radar completely. And I became curious and, and started to read more about it and then before long I realized that this story had all the right materials to make a setting for some really terrific fiction
1: uh, And so of course you have to you have to dive into to history right you've in the uh, promotional materials there's a quote from uh, RI Moore, Professor Meredith's history at Newcastle University. Um, RI Moore says that, that Julie Berry has done her homework so you've got certification
0: there. Well, I certainly did try to. Um, there, it was a, a long process, a lot of reading, a lot of research, and a lot of reaching out to academics uh, like Mr. Moore and um, others who have been invaluable in, in my effort to better understand this really complicated history. It's not only complicated, but it's, um, I guess you could say, interpretations of this period of time are somewhat controversial and you know, the subjects of, of a great deal of academic debate, and so uh, there was conflict on every side. <laughs> so that made it interesting.
1: I wonder if I could have you read the, uh, uh, the, the two quotations at the beginning, then a, a bit of the first part of the, the book, before we even get into the plot of the book, because I think there's, there's a sense of mystery. Okay.
0: Sin is the cause of all this pain, but all shall be well, and all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. That's by Julian of Norwich, 14th century mystic, and the first woman known to write a book in English, from Revelations of Divine Love, chapter 27. Whatever we inherit from the fortunate, we have taken from the defeated what they had to leave us, a symbol, a symbol perfected in death, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. T.S. Eliot, 20th-century poet, quoting Julian in his poem, Little Gidding. 1290, Friar Arnout d'Avignonet, the convent of the Jacobins, Tolosa. I must write this account, and when I have finished, I will burn it. Mine is the historian's task to record the events of the last century, showing God's mighty hand in ridding these southern lands between the Garona and the Rose Rivers, Of the heresy of the albigensians. I am asked to show future generations how God's justice was carried out by the crusade against these so-called good men, bunzumes, good women, bunas femnas, and friends of God, amix de dieu, and how the inquisitions that followed, wrought by my brother Dominicans, finished God's holy work. The collected records of more than half a century of inquisitorial toil, are mine to examine, transcripts, testimonies, and confessions from a generation now all but extinct. When searching out a history, sifting through a 1,000 facts and 10,000 lives, one often uncovers pieces that do not fit. The prudent choice is to cast those details aside, like chaff into the fire. The story must be understandable. The moral should be clear. Perhaps I am not a prudent man, I found pieces that haunted me, voices echoing from parchment leaves that would not let me sleep at night. I could find no rest until I searched out the truth, studied what I could learn about those involved, and found a way, with, I pride myself, a minimum of invention to make the pieces fit, if only for me. There are those who would say this record casts doubt upon the righteousness of the Church's work, which is why this book, written for my private satisfaction, must not outlive me.
1: That's a Julie Berry reading from her book The Passion of Dolce*, which is just just out. So there's, there's a sense of mystery here. This, this, this historian, uh, he's intrigued by this, but it doesn't fit the narrative that he is tasked with, with painting.
0: Absolutely. There was very much a, a, an imperative to tell the story of what was done through the lens of it having been done to the glory of God, and through His mighty hand, the, uh, the savagery, the, the annihilations that were part of the Albigensian Crusade, which lasted for 20 years in this region just prior to the start of this story, um, was, was described by the Roman Catholic officials who were leading this crusade as having been, you know, victories of a biblical proportion. When what it was was you know entire cities incinerated, every man, woman, and child you know choking to death in the smoke um, so it's it's interesting to me and of course tragically morbidly interesting <laughs> to to see ways in which holy violence, you might say, genocide, butchery um, can be cloaked in this um, aura of sanctity and holiness if if people can be led to believe that this is god's will. Mm-hmm.
1: And unfortunately, that's a theme that comes down to our time.
0: It does. I found it chilling. I found it eerily modern, <laughs> even though it was rooted in 13th century sensibilities. It was it was painfully surprising to me how how relevant this time felt, how how reminiscent of 20th and 21st century tragedies that we are still working through. Mm.
1: Uh, so tell me about the Albigensians what, what uh, in the Albigensian Crusade.
0: Sure. So this was a, a war that lasted from 1209 to 1229, fought in southern, what we now call southern France, but what was then Provence, or provincia in Latin. And uh, it was as a result of this war and the peace treaty that followed it, that those lands eventually were annexed into France, but they weren't part of France at the start of the 13th century. This war was fought over a belief held by Catholic intellectuals, including Pope Innocent III himself, that this region of Provence was steeped in heresy. And the, the war became known as the Albigensian Crusade because Albigensian was a sort of nickname used by northern Frenchmen to describe the men of the south or the people of the south, um, but the the actual heretics, which I would say were not by my measurement heretics, but, you know, it's a very subjective term, I guess you'd say. They were these people that I mentioned in the reading called the good men, Bunzumes, the good women, Bunes Femnas, and the friends of God, the amix de Dieu. And they were people that were found in every city and town and village throughout the region. They were, I guess you'd just say, sort of a... A local flavor of uh, of life a a sort of not even a movement or a group but they were uh, they believed in certain patterns of holiness certain forms of prayer they lived very simply they usually did not marry they wore very simple clothing and were generally poor and they were held in wide respect in their communities for being people of integrity and virtue and simplicity so they were not a church, but they were just, you might say, a sort of local tradition. And they were seen by all as being pious Christians, certainly by themselves. But Catholic intellectuals passing through saw this practice and saw these people being honored and you know, bowed to by their countrymen, and they interpreted it as a heretical religion that had sprung up. And one of those people was Dominic de Guzman, who we now know as Saint Dominic. But he farmed his order of Dominican friars' preachers specifically to combat this heresy. And so there was a a movement of preaching to try to convert these so-called heretics over to the true faith, but that didn't work because everyone local understood that they were part of the true faith. And um, when that failed, uh, Pope Innocent III began looking for a way to start a war. And he received his opportunity, I guess you'd say, when one of his legates or ambassadors sent to negotiate with Count Raymond of Toulouse was murdered. And that murder, uh, though historians believe it to have been a sort of isolated event, was, was one of those pivotal moments in history, like the assassination of Arch, you know, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, it, it, was the, it was the justification that Pope Innocent III needed to call down a crusade. And what's significant about this crusade is it is the first time that a crusade had been called in Europe against Europe. So, this was the first time European Christians slaughtered other European Christians for the sake of Christ. Prior to that, crusades were expeditions to the Holy Land. Mm. So it was the first time that this idea of Christian holy war was invoked to carry out a local uh, agenda. Mm.
1: And in part, it's, it, there are eerie echoes to our time. In part, there's you know, some, some of this we probably don't understand as well. Uh, I was thinking that the, one of the factors here is that there, there's not— officially, there's not supposed to be diversity of ideas, right? It's supposed to be one Christian faith. Everybody is supposed to adhere strictly.
0: Absolutely. You know, the term Catholic means universal. And so, you know, there was a, a feeling that there should be one universal faith— and it should be, you know, completely under the authority of Rome. And so, this this war and then the inquisitions that followed it uh, were exercises in attempting to police thought and to try to regulate and intimidate into submission into submission the hearts and minds of Europe. Um, and you know, obviously, to modern Americans and modern Europeans, this is a repugnant idea because we now value freedom of thought, freedom of belief. Um, But obviously we've seen throughout even modern totalitarian regimes efforts made to suppress and control thought. And I think that it it goes along, it corresponds well with the church's rise in power in other ways. Um, in In order to grow in power, the church needed uh, an enemy to fight. You might say they needed they needed to amass power in order to justify their their reach. And so, inventing the the threat of heresy of uh, you know being about to overthrow society and overthrow the faithful gave created the justification for the church to grow in military and economic might. Just as you might say Hitler and his regime inventing the idea that the Jews were the cause of all of Germany's problems and that they were the threat, the common enemy that must be destroyed. Therefore, they needed to build up a massive military-industrial complex to have the weapons and the tools and the money to eliminate the Jews. This was all, it's the same kind of pattern of scapegoating and and creating an enemy in order to justify uh, a rapid rise to power. Mm.
1: You're listening to Access Utah. We're talking with author Julie Berry. We're talking about her historical novel, The Passion of Dulce. More information at julieberrybooks.com. We'll have more following this break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. I recently heard an employee complain that my boss doesn't respect my opinion. Instead of giving sympathy, I said, leave your opinion at home. In a good work environment, opinions don't matter. Facts matter. Facts are data combined with analysis. If you have data and solid analysis, then your leader and colleagues better listen, and they probably will. But your opinion doesn't matter. So leave your opinion at home and bring facts and good analysis to work. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement, huntsman.usu.edu.
0: The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. We cannot take your calls at this time. But you can still join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com.
1: It's Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Julie Berry. She is award-winning author of All the Truth That's in Me and uh, several other books. Her uh, new historical novel is titled The Passion of Dolce. You can join this conversation by email to upraccess at gmail.com. Um, I understand you uh, You became interested in in the lives of uh, medieval female mystics. Um,
0: Very much so, t- t- tell, yes. tell me about
1: uh, some some of them, you know, uh, some that we would have heard of, Catherine of Siena, uh, Clara mm-hmm. of Assisi.
0: That's right. Um, many people are familiar with Hildegard of Bingen, or as you said, Catherine of Siena, Clara of Assisi, Teresa of Avila, you know, many others... That, MacTield of Magdeburg, Um, a lot of people have have studied the mystics, whether through their literary studies or through religious studies or through feminist studies, because these women lived very um, startling lives. At, At an age where there were really no other options for women besides marriage and motherhood, these women dared to claim an alternate path and to seek a life that they would find more spiritually fulfilling because of their, their deep passion for God. And that passion was so consuming and so compelling. It, it filled them with so much joy and longing that they were willing to give up all else in order to claim it, including, you know, they, they shaved their hair, they, you know, f- forsook their names, they gave up all their worldly possessions, they lived in poverty, they lived in hunger and privation, in order to have the privilege of devoting their lives to prayer and service. And, you know, some of us today would look at that and think, that's just bizarre. <laughs> but I think we have to remember how courageous it was of them to defy convention and to defy their families and to defy um, you know, society's overwhelming expectations for women and, and carve out a life that would fulfill them. And, you know, it was very fulfilling. I mean... Most of us today might not find the idea of being a nun in a cloister so liberating, <laughs> but they were able to devote their lives to study and prayer and service and the companionship of other women, and that probably sounded like a paradise to many, as opposed to you know, having a child every year until you died.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and the mystic part of it, that was, was that, I mean, there were, there were male mystics, right? But, but there were a lot of female mystics.
0: Definitely, and, and certainly there were male mystics. Anybody who devoted their life to seeking encounters with God and who claimed to receive such encounters would be described as a mystic. And so, you know, John of the Cross is one example of a male mystic, and he was a contemporary, I believe, of Teresa of Avila. Um, But there were many people who abandoned all else in order to devote their entire lives to trying to find God and trying to communicate commune with him directly and to receive his presence into their lives and this usually involved a path of you know giving up worldly comforts even depriving the flesh you might say so fasting and living in very austere conditions um, living in isolation so that social pressures and distractions didn't interfere with their pursuit of god Um, you know again some of the things they did might look odd to us today but i can't help but admire the fervor of their desire and the intensity of their commitment to this ideal of finding God. And as a person of faith, I admire it tremendously, and I look at my own life and think, hmm, <laughs> how much am I really willing to give up? <laughs> it's uh, they, they hold up a mirror, I think, mm-hmm. to all of us uh, in terms of what is possible for the heart that, that longs for God. And mm-hmm. It's really inspiring.
1: The, so you, you're a person of faith, you said. So um, I wonder, do you draw any parallels to to today? We we have, uh, you know, famously the the nuns are not n u n but n o n e s mm-hmm. are are kind of becoming the largest group, not not subscribing mm-hmm. to any particular organized religion, but but describing themselves as spiritual.
0: I I do think there are um, parallels to today, and I think that a lot of people, including those who would describe themselves as atheist or or a nun, as you say, you know, ascribing to no faith but being open to spiritual things, I think that the story of these mystics has a great deal to offer them. And I believe that a story like Dulce's, who is the mystical character in this book, who you know, gives up all in order to pursue her beloved and yet is tragically and cruelly religiously persecuted because of it. I think that a story like Dulce's really offers a good discussion ground for the issues and the controversies that we face surrounding faith and spirituality today. This book does not um, condemn all religion simply because it portrays the darkest, most violent manifestations of what religious zeal can do. Um, it, It also... Tries to show um, the beauty that that some people manage to find in in their spiritual journeys, as well as the complexity of that beauty, the elusive character of it. How even Dulce, this you know incredibly pious and, and ardent girl, has to kind of walk through her own valley of sorrow and doubt and questioning and wondering why she cannot find God anymore. So I. I think that it has a lot to say to people, and from what I've been observing from the, the response by readers, I'm finding that many people who do, would describe themselves as not religious are still very much drawn to, um, to how this book allows a conversation about religion. I know a lot of people who are not themselves religious, and yet they describe a certain kind of envy uh, that they feel toward those people who are able to find solace. Consolation and community and meaning in faith. They they say, you know, I, I can't in honesty myself find it there, but I I feel some longing and some envy of those who who can. At least some people feel that way.
1: We're talking with Julie Berry. Uh, she's uh, author of uh, several books. The latest is The Passion of Dolce. A novel. Uh, let me just read a couple of paragraphs here. Uh, give uh, readers, uh, uh, listeners, a, a sense of, of what this book is. Dolce, a young noblewoman from the city, year by the way is 1241, uh, is on the run, hunted by an obsessed friar determined to burn her as a heretic for divine love, divine love that she will not refute. Botil is a clever and charismatic peasant, a matchmaker. Operating a tavern with her two sisters in, as you call it, Bajas? Bajas. Uh, Bajas, uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. A uh, teeny seaside town. When the matchmaker finds the mystic nearly dead by a riverside, she takes Dolsa in and discovers the girl's extraordinary healing power, aided by her sisters, and is it Simo? Mm-hmm. Um, her surly but loyal neighbor Botil nurses Dulce back to health and hides her from the pursuers but all of Botil's tricks, tales, and plans can't protect them forever and when the full wrath of the church bears down upon Bias, Dulce's passion and Botil's good intentions could destroy the entire village. That's the plot in brief. Uh, so Julie Berry, tell me, tell me a bit about uh, Dulce. She, she's she's a mystic?
0: She is. She is a, a young noblewoman from the city of Tolosa or Toulouse as we call it today and she lives right in sort of ground zero of the 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 inquisitors um and so when she begins to speak in a very small sphere about her visions and her experiences with her beloved who is jesus um, she attracts the attention of the friars and is interrogated and ultimately convicted of the crime of heresy and sentenced to death by fire along with her mother because in this world in this context Association with a heretic meant that you were a heretic yourself. So simply by associating at all, you were you were assumed to be equally a threat. Again, eerily modern, where we have, you know, politicians talking about taking out the lives of the family members of terrorists. Right? If you were connected to a heretic in any way, you must be a heretic yourself. And so Dulce and her mother are sentenced to death by fire, and Dulce must watch as her mother is indeed. A executed, and then just as it's about to be her turn, she is miraculously cut free, or she believes it to be a miracle, and something tells her to run, and so she runs and escapes and becomes a fugitive, fleeing the Inquisitors for her life, but very ill-prepared to survive you know, hmm. on her own, you might say. Uh,
1: the, the title, The Passion of Dolce, the passion meant something different in 1241
0: than it does today. It did indeed. The... Um, well, I've got to be careful what I say here. Well, and I, I definitely chose the title um, for, I guess you might say, both layers of meaning that are available because certainly hers is a passion every bit as intense and romantic and even sexual as any other you know love affair. But also the term, the passion of, was, was used in the Middle Ages, as, as today even, to describe the, the sufferings of a saint. And usually those sufferings, culminating in uh their martyrdom so where we talk about the you know the movie the passion of the christ that's what that term means um it, you know something perhaps very familiar to catholics who study the lives of saints but perhaps less familiar to the rest of us
1: mm-hmm. and so uh dolce uh, passion in a physical sense very much in the physical realm but also passion in the spiritual sense absolutely yeah uh, so tell me about Botil.
0: Botia is wonderful. She is, is what, okay. quite the. But, <laughs> it's okay. okay, quite the the counterpoint, you might say, to Dolce. She, she is. If if Dulce is pious, Botia and her sisters are anything but. They are scrappy little survivors. They they grew up as sort of homeless little thieves when their mother died, and they arrived in this town of Bias and tried to go straight and run this little tavern, but. Going straight is sort of a relative term for three motherless and essentially fatherless young girls trying to survive in a a medieval world. So um, they do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and uh, the older sister seems to supplement their income with a a little bit of the oldest profession in the world. (laughs) And uh, Botia herself is a matchmaker. She has a knack for figuring out which people would get along well together. And so she kind of brokers marriages in their little town. Her younger sister, Cizia, is a bit of a fortune teller. And where I got the inspiration for these three sisters is kind of comical. I was thinking one day that it would be fun to imagine Macbeth's three witches (laughs) as teenage sisters running a roadside inn. (laughs) And so that became these three girls. And, of course, they're not really witches in the story, but they have these sort of talents you might say, and they, they use them to just try to survive. So Botia is, is a championship liar and thinks that she can lie her way out of trouble and has done so for most of her life, um, but her ability to lie her way out of, out of a mess is really tested by the, the precision and the, uh, the intensity of the Inquisitor's pursuit for guilt wherever it can be found. But she takes Dulce in out of just basic human compassion and kindness and doesn't realize at first how, how dangerous her good deed could be. The scene where she rescues uh, Dulce by the riverside is, is written as a sort of deliberate re- retelling of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and uh, what, what Botia will find is that her good deed may cost her everything. Mm. And yet she still believes, as I do, that, that that was still the right choice to
1: make. Hmm. Yeah, complex, and uh, as mm-hmm. these things often are. Um wonder if you tell me about, the, this not a character in your book, but you, you have her at the beginning, beginning of the book, I, I had not known of Julian of Norwich, mm-hmm. a 14th century mystic. You, you have her quote there. Mm-hmm. And, and the first woman, apparently, uh, known to write a book in English?
0: Mm-hmm. she's a she's a fascinating woman um her her writings are sublime her her spiritual view of god's relationship to man and the nature of sin and the nature of pardon and salvation is i find um, extraordinarily beautiful and tender and comforting she not a lot is known about her she uh, was a a recluse she lived in a cell a, a sort of cubicle Built, attached to the the Church of St. Julian in the city of Norwich, England. So we call her Julian, but we don't know her real name, but she's called Julian after the church where she was um, enclosed there in that cell. so her cell had no door. So she was built into this room for life, which was what she wanted. And uh, somebody came and you know brought her food and so forth, and she was able through a, a sort of opening in the wall to hear the mass. But um, she she never left that room, and she was able in that room to devote her life to meditation and prayer, and and to writing her book. Um, and she was you know visited by many people who came to seek her wisdom, um, including a woman named Marjorie Kemp, another mystic in the Middle Ages, who wrote what we would consider the first autobiography. And so, again, these, these mystical women were remarkable in their urge to write and tell their stories. But Julian is a, a, a wonderful study. Even though we don't know as much about her as we'd like to, um, her writings, uh, you know, they, they still endure.
1: You're listening to Access Utah. We are spending the hour with author Julie Berry. We're talking about her new historical novel, The Passion of Dulce. More information on Julie Berry at julieberrybooks.com. More following a break. We reached our last segment now with Julie Berry. We're talking about her new historical novel, The Passion of Dulce. I'd like to talk a little bit about history and how history is made. Um, You note that... Many of the, the the mystics, female mystics we've been talking about, they started out as heretics and became saints. Mm. And I suppose, you know, that, that that path is also a path of who's writing the history and, and when, right?
0: Very much so. These women were tremendously courageous in daring to speak out about their encounters with God, especially in a time when... You might say there was a male monopoly <laughs> on, on God, on religious leadership, on inspiration and revelation and prophecy. So it was a great leap of faith for them to go public with their experiences. But what's remarkable about their lives is that their apparent encounters with God filled them with a confidence and a fearlessness, a, a, a compulsion to tell their story, come what may. But they spoke out and... Whether or not they were embraced as a visionary and ultimately sainted or persecuted and executed as a heretic had everything to do with how their local bishop viewed them. So if their local bishop believed they were sincere and legitimate, they would be pretty well protected and shielded from persecution and harm. And if they had a following and were believed to have performed some miracles, a petition would be made soon after their death. To have them sainted, and so many of them ultimately are, are, are female saints. But um, others who were not so fortunate in, uh, in how they were received by local leadership were, were, were punished or silenced, or in some cases executed. Hmm. If
1: we bring this forward to uh, today, this item in a secular sense, do you see a similar path for some people that start as a heretic, end up as a saint, you know, and again, in, in a secular sense?
0: Mm, Interesting. Well, I I mean, I think, uh, I've thought about this a lot in terms of modern religions and the the things that modern faiths do to sort of police the boundaries of orthodoxy in their tradition and how it is that um, that any new religious voice that comes forward may be welcomed as an innovator, uh, you know, a visionary, someone with something beneficial to offer, or may be rejected as a danger to the faithful. And I think that it does deal a blow to the soul of the organization if violence of any form is used to drive out <laughs> the dangerous beliefs. I think, you know, you ask an interesting question though about, you know, secular realms or, or maybe political arenas, um, you know, how we, how we uh, make space for differences of belief. Well, for example, if we look at the McCarthy era, right, the kinds of uh, reign of terror and interrogation and guilt by association that we see from the Inquisitors in the 13th century, we see again in, you know, 1950s United States, where, you know, if, if ever you were accused of being a communist or being a sympathizer or associating with them, there was really no way to wash off the taint of that accusation. You were... You were guilty, and uh, you know the same kind of thing where um, you know it's a reign of terror, and um, ideas that may have had a great deal of validity uh, were were nevertheless you know driven out of town on a rail. You might say, mm-hmm.
1: and in one sense, you know, in in the modern world, we're we're kind of not supposed to have heretics, right? Because it's supposed to be free flow of ideas, marketplace of ideas. Um, but, you know, I think we do have, we do we do definitely have limits where, where most people would say that's beyond the pale, and that probably shifts as, as well as we go along.
0: Mm. Well, there are those, you know, um, religious groups that make the news from time to time. Um, you know, whether accurately reported or not, we, we don't know, but, I mean, we can think of, oh, you know, Waco, Texas, or, um, you know, I'm not going to come up with all the, <laughs> the right names, but, you know, various sort of fringy religious movements that are just odd and deviant and dangerous, and, and or so we feel. And uh, so so that happens from time to time, but usually that falls into the territory that most people would dismiss as, you know, radical and bizarre and cultish, and so that doesn't count. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that in many uh, dominant religions today, you have a, a great deal of tension and pull over Social questions, for example, the role of women in those movements, or um, how how that religion can enter the modern world, and how people can live the religion as well as be part of a secular or democratic society. I think that you know much of the conflict that we see um, in in the Middle East has to do with Varying interpretations of how uh, Islamic faith should be allowed to um, enter the modern world. Well, you know, how, how much, how secular can you be and, and still be part of that faith? And obviously there are, you know, enormous populations of people who've made that transition without any difficulty. But there are other parts of the world where a great deal of violence is, is taking place over who gets to regulate that. Mm.
1: If you just joined us, we're talking with Julie Berry. She's author of All the Truth That's in Me, The Scandalous Sisterhood of a Prick-Willow Palace, Secondhand Charm, the Amaranth Enchantment, and the *Splurch Academy series. And uh, her latest is The Passion of Dolce*. Uh, Julie Berry, is there another passage you'd like to read from, from the book?
0: Oh, yes. I'm going to read a short section by Botia. This is toward the beginning of the book. And this is actually Botia as an adult looking back on her life. She is speaking to someone, and I think it will become clear who, as I read. And so I'm going to read a section as she sort of introduces her life story, looking back. 1267, Botia. I swear to tell the full and exact truth about myself and others, living and dead. Why keep secrets? There's no one it would help. The dead are all I have to talk about, anyway. What harm can there be in telling their stories now? They are safe, beyond reach. There was a time when my name was Botia, when I lived with my sisters and our old Jobau. We lived by our wits and great buckets of nerve, and anything, anything, we could steal or sell. Like most in Proenza, we'd seen hunger and illness. We'd grown up in Carcassona, a city broken by the Crusaders before we were born. But what was yesterday's war to little girls? We'd lost our mother. That was all we had room for. She left each of us her love, her reputation, two sisters, and Jabao, and one silver crucifix to share. We begged for our dinner and stole washing from peasants to clothe little Sazia. We huddled together to keep warm at night. Jabao's drinking and his temper harried us from town to town at the hands of the bailays, bailiffs. We were wanderers, survivors, always searching for a home. We thrived upon it, greedy little urchins, foolhardy little thieves. Now I see we were magic, my sister and I. We laughed at ourselves, at Jabao and the world. Nobody's ever made me laugh like my cynical little Cezia could. You wouldn't think it to know her now. We gave Plazenza, the eldest, fits of rage with our cheek. Life was sweet, though I doubt we realized how much. Home was each other, not walls but the adventure of the search to find them. Our wanderings led us to a small seaside town called Bias, and there, among vintners and fishermen, we saw an opening and decided to seek a home. We washed our faces and combed our hair and tried to make something more of ourselves. We swore we'd give up thieving. We'd grown old enough to know it was safer to be inside the law and the arms of the villa than out of them. We took over an old derelict tavern and dared to run it. Plazenza's brewing, our scrubbing, Zizia's fortune-telling, and my hustle brought customers in. We began to feel that we might belong, and others counted us among their neighbors and friends. Finally and forever, I believed we could be safe. Then I met Dulce
1: that's Julie Berry reading from the Passion of Dolce her uh, her new novel uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the this area of uh, right now it's uh, Provence in in France right it was a that's right separate and area if
0: it, the the area called Provence or, or you know Proenza in the novel stretches beyond what is today the the region of Provence in modern France so it would include you know the area called Languedoc and um, so it's a little larger. But this town of Bias is based on the present day town of Baj, which I got to visit as I did my research. And it is right on the coast of a lagoon or lake off the coast of the Mediterranean. So it's called Le Tong and it is uh as I said like a lagoon. So Baj is a small village on a you know, nestled on a hill, hilltop with a sloping down to the the shore of this lagoon off the sea. And it is just stunning. Uh,
1: one vestige uh, from, I guess, from the, the times you write about in the book is, is the Provencal dialect. I think some people mm. still still speak that older form.
0: It, it's true. So the language spoken in this part of the world at the time of the story was not French at all. Oh, okay. It was no it was called well we scholars today call it old provencal and its modern form we call today occitan and so that's based on the the root is oc Ouk, and that was the word for yes used in this part in this language mm-hmm. so there was the the doc the language of oc ok or U-K, and then there was the langdoy which was the la- the, the language of we basically so the northerners said oui for yes, and that's what we call French today, and the Southerners spoke ouc. They said "ook" for yes, so that's the Languedoc, and, you know, Languedoc is a, is a part of France today. Mm-hmm. But the language of Occitan derives from Old Provencal, just like modern English derives from the, the language spoken by Chaucer. <laughs> mm-hmm. So sort of the same, but pretty different, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you know, Ch- Chaucer came along later than this story, by a little bit. So um, Occitan is still in use today in parts of southern France, but its, its use d- has dwindled greatly, and it's been sort of under systematic attack by French officials who have wanted very much to impose French upon the region as its national language. Um, and so when I was traveling throughout the region, I asked people that I encountered whether they spoke Occitan, and they, they kind of all said, "Well." My my parents did, and my grandparents did, and I, you know, I I know what it means, but I can't really speak it. <laughs> so uh, there, you know, very small number of people still use the language today, but it has seen a bit of an artistic and poetic revival. You can hear, you know, folk songs sung, and um, you know, they're they're it it's it's being kept alive, you might say, in the arts. Um, so I hope that it will not die.
1: So it sounds like the French Academy has been somewhat successful. I mean, they they're trying to. They're trying to repel the uh, the invaders, you know things like Le sweater and Le skyscraper and but also <laughs> the the also I guess the older forms of French they want a unified French language
0: mm, right, well, and you know nationalized education sort of
1: uh, oh, I guess that know. would that would help too yeah or or hinder yeah. depending on your point of view um right exactly I want to before we before we end here. I want to uh, switch over from Passion of Dulce and talk about one of your other books, The Scandalous Sisterhood of Prickwilla mm-hmm. Place. rather. Um, this one is, it seems like a very fun book. This one is, is set in Victorian times, right? You, you seem to like to do historical research.
0: I do. I, it's not. It's not in every single one of my books, but I, I really do enjoy learning about the past and about different cultures and languages and places. So this one is set in Victorian England, and uh, oh, I just had a blast mm-hmm. writing this one. It's sort of my love letter to you know British farcical plays and Dickens and Agatha Christie, all sort of mishmashed into one.
1: And we've got the we got the book trailer. So uh, let's uh, oh. let, let's let's hear this. It's fun. It's kind of kind of fun to <laughs> to to hear this.
0: This is the story of seven proper finishing school girls,
1: with one tiny secret. They were impersonating their deadhead mistress, whom they buried with her.
0: Brother in the back garden, after both rudely died at dinner. Faced with the horror of being sent home, this scandalous sisterhood resolved to stay together, and neither poison, nor murder, nor nosy English neighbors could stand in their way for long.
1: So uh, there it is. That's kind of a fun, <laughs> kind of fun thing. These uh, these these girls at the school, their their headmistress, I guess, dies mysteriously, and they decide uh, they don't want adults around. So <laughs> so this this guy's right. one of the girls as the headmistress, and then and then they go from there.
0: That's right. They they think they can run their own little, you know, teenage girls utopia in this school, and no one will be the wiser. Um, and so of course they just bury the bodies in the back garden. What could go wrong with this plan? (laughs) It sounds pretty foolproof to them. Uh, Of course, they do find that it's not quite as easy as they thought it would be, in part because apparently someone has murdered the headmistress, and uh, if they succeed in persuading the world that she's still alive, that murderer will probably strike again. So they have a a murder mystery to solve, and a lie to uphold, and a school to run, and uh, they really have to to work as a team to try to pull hmm. that off, so uh, it's, uh, it's farcical and fun.
1: Yeah, it sounds like fun. I was trying to find this quote again, and I couldn't find it to to attribute it. Uh, someone said, if you if you took David Sedaris and Agatha Christie and they had a, they had a child, it would be Julie Berry. <laughs>
0: If that extremely improbable union occurred, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> yeah, that that's a quote that appears on the back of the book by author Holly Goldberg Sloan, that would really oh, it's it's awesome. right here in
1: the back of the book. Okay, there, okay, <laughs> there you go. Um, but but so a sense of sense of fun there. I mean, mystery, but also fun.
0: Definitely, absolutely. Yeah, I like to write a lot of different in a lot of different styles. I I like each book to be very different from the next, and so that book is very playful. Um, Whereas, you know, some others a little less so, mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. Heretics and Inquisition is mm-hmm. not quite as a playful a combination.
1: I <laughs> <laughs> just uh, don't and have much time left. Uh, um, I want to just get briefly into your biography. You say after your fourth son was born, you decided since your family dreams were now well underway, it was time to pursue writing novels. You went back and got your MFA and uh, and uh, jumped in. So that's with, do uh, you have, what, four boys?
0: I do. Four sons, yeah.
1: Four sons, which may be a little busier than four girls. I don't know, but but even you know, either way, and then you then you want to jump into writing. How did that go?
0: <laughs> well, I think I was sort of fueled by uh, the craziness of my life. If that probably sounds paradoxical, you know, how does a busy mom find time to write? Well, a busy mom has to really uh, find a way to survive. <laughs> And writing became my outlet, and it was really a a wonderful source of joy. Not that my children weren't, but they were, you know, they were a handful. They still are, and uh, especially when they were young, you know, their their needs were intense, and I had a correspondingly intense need to create a little corner of my life that was for me. And so I believe that, that it was not in spite of my children that I wrote, but because of them, in, in in the best of ways and i think it's been um it's been a real blessing for the whole family
1: yeah that's that's wonderful uh finally what are you what are you onto next what are you working on
0: i'm working on a younger middle grade story right now it's in the revision stage called the emperor's ostrich very playful uh, magical adventure tale sort of in the in the vein of lloyd alexander it's kind of my love letter to him and beyond that i am really kind of casting about looking for inspiration for my next young adult novel, and uh, not sure where that'll take me.
1: All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Julie Berry is uh, author of All the Truth That's in Me, The Scandalous Sisterhood of Willow Place, Secondhand Charm, The Amaranth Enchantment, and the Splurge Academy uh, series. She lives in Los Angeles, California. The latest is The Passion of Dulce. The website is julieberrybooks.com. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Tom.